Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. And so today I want to turn, have us turn our attention and our Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, and I want to read the first 11 verses. Um, now, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, uh, on a colt and on the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. All right, let's say a word of prayer and jump into this morning's message. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your presence here with us today, thankful for the opportunity to gather on this Palm Sunday where we remember that, in fact, you are uh, king over all the world, and we recognize you uh, as king today. And we pray, God, that as we uh, look at the, the layers and the complexities of this story of how you entered into Jerusalem on this very first day of Holy Week, I pray, God, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds Uh, not just for understanding of your word, but for the application of your word, that we may uh, take today uh, a valuable lesson that we can begin to apply to our lives uh, through the encouragement and the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. And so God be with us in these moments together, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Um, Palm Sunday is a deeply political story. Uh, Just reading it on the surface, we wouldn't catch on to this. Uh, To us, palm leaves, cloaks, and shouts of Hosanna are really nothing more than, well, palm leaves, cloaks, and shouts of Hosanna. Uh, But if we understand the context, we we realize that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem uh, on this Sunday is, is really nothing short of a political rally. Uh, So I want to take a moment just to look at what are these uh, symbols that are given to us in this story. Uh, What is their context and what do they then mean on this day when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem? And we begin with the palm leaf or the palm branch. Uh, This was a symbol of prosperity. Uh, It was often used in illustrations that decorated the temple. And so in the temple, which, which is all this, uh, this elaborate material, this beautiful building, this wonderful architecture, in the midst of all of that for decorations was, was used illustrations of the palm as a way of, of implicitly saying this is a place uh, of prosperity. In fact, when Ezekiel gives his vision of the new temple, the, the palm leaf is absolutely included as a vital part of that picture. But the palm leaf was also a sign of, of victory. 
Uh, it was often used to welcome a, a king or a war hero back home from all of their travels. And so when we look at the waving of the palms, what does this mean? What was the crowd saying about who they believed Jesus actually was? Well, we can say that the crowd was essentially saying through the waving of palms that Jesus was coming to bring victory and usher in a time of prosperity for the Jewish people. He was, in fact, their hero ready to wage war. And then lying down, laying down of cloaks, I want to read to you 2 Kings 9.13, which says this. They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. And then they blew the trumpet and they shouted, Jehu is king. Jehu sounds like a Star Wars name, does it not? George Lucas missed out on a good opportunity there. So we read that in 2 Kings, this, this laying down of cloaks is a sign of royalty. But in this passage, uh, what's really interesting is that they are proclaiming Jehu as king. But what's most interesting about this is that at this time, Jehu is not king. Jehoram is king. And so the act of, of laying down one's cloak was a sign of loyalty that this person is in fact and functions as your king, that you are recognizing them as king, whether they hold that office, the office of king or not. And so laying down your cloak before someone could actually be a, a subversive way of saying, uh, this one is king and the other is not. And this is actually precisely what the crowd on, this, on the very first Palm Sunday was doing, is they were laying down their cloaks as a way of proclaiming and, and subverting Caesar, and they, were, they essentially were saying, Jesus is, in fact, the true king. And so you combine these two elements, these, these waving of palm branches, a sign of victory. Our, our Savior has finally come to wage war against our enemies. And then we lay down our cloaks and say, Jesus is, in fact, the one true king. Jesus is king. Caesar isn't, is essentially what this crowd was saying. And then they say, they shout, Hosanna to the son of David. And they give Jesus this very particular title, the son of David. And if you look at the history, you realize that a thousand years earlier in this same city of Jerusalem, David had built the temple. He was a hero of the faith. And it was said and prophesied that the, true, the world's true Messiah would come from the line of David and be a son of David. And so you have the waving of the victorious palms. You have the laying down of the cloaks. You have the shouts of, of son of David. All of this leading to this this crescendo of expectation that Jesus is, in fact, this long-awaited Messiah, this royalty, the one true king. And all, we could say then that all of this royal expectation was summed up with their shouts of Hosanna. And Hosanna, what Hosanna actually means is save us. And so as we this morning were waving palm branches, and many of you were shy, and that's okay, uh, but as we were waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna, what we are saying is we are recognizing Jesus as the true king, and we are echoing our sentiment that this, just this Christ, this Messiah, would in fact be the one who saves us. But all of their royal expectations were summed up in this phrase, save us. They had clear expectations of what Jesus should do as, as the Messiah, as the one they had waited for for so long, as the one who was actually king. 
They had very clear expectations of what he should do. They wanted Jesus to come and save them by way of violent revolution, taking up arms and overthrowing their oppressors to free them from the evils of Roman oppression. And all of this, this whole scene, the shouts of Hosanna, naming Jesus as the son of David, laying down cloaks, waving palm branches, all of those things make perfect sense. But there's just one thing in this story that is amiss. And that is that Jesus comes riding in on a donkey. You see, all of this royal expectation, all of these acts proclaiming Jesus as king, all of the shouts of Hosanna calling for Jesus to save them by taking up arms and and starting a violent revolution against Rome, all of that would have required that Jesus ride in on a war horse. But Jesus doesn't come in riding a war horse prepared for war. He rather comes in riding on a donkey. Now horses and donkeys and palm branches and cloaks don't mean a lot to us. And so uh, this would have been absolutely revolutionary, but in the, in the totally different way than they had expected. And so if we think about this in more modern terms, uh, we might think about it in this way. That Jesus rides into Jerusalem to start a revolution, but he doesn't come riding in on a Humvee. He comes riding in on a VW Bug, which stands for peace, right? Because it comes out of the 60s. <laughs> or maybe it's not peaceful because we hit each other every time we see one. But this simple act of riding in on a donkey becomes an object lesson. And the object lesson is that, yes, Jesus will, in fact, become king, but, but he won't become the kind of king that they had wanted hoped for, or even expected. You see, most kings were anointed with oil on their head by royalty. But Jesus is a different kind of king. And so Jesus is instead anointed with perfume on his feet by a prostitute. Most kings receive a a crown of gold to wear on their heads, but, but Jesus, this king, will instead wear a crown of thorns upon his head. Most kings are, in fact, given a robe, which Jesus was. But Jesus wore his robe just before he was beaten and scourged. You see, most kings are enthroned with great ceremony, pomp, and circumstance, and all the attention of the world. But this king is enthroned upon a wooden cross. You see, Jesus is, in fact, king. But he's a totally different kind of king. And we know that Jesus is king because there's a sign that lays and is hung right above his head on the cross And it says, the king of the Jews. That was the indictment against him. That was the charge, that he was a king. And in fact, he was, but he was a totally different kind of king. 
And so in the most holy of ironies, all the expectations of the Jewish crowd for a savior will in fact be met. They will in fact be freed from evil. They will in fact be freed uh, and rescued as they had called out, save us. But they will not, but it will not be done in a way that they expect because they will be freed. They wanted to be freed from the evil of Roman impression, oppression, but instead they were freed from the evil of sin and death. And their shouts of Hosanna, their shouts of save us will in fact be answered, but they will be answered by Jesus taking violence upon himself, not by Jesus taking up arms against other people. And so what Jesus was showing them on this day when he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey instead of a horse, Jesus was showing the crowd that in fact he was becoming who and what they wanted, but he was doing it in his own way. And I think that's really important for us to understand is that Jesus was accomplishing exactly what they wanted and exactly what they needed, but he was doing it in his own way. One of our, the second line of our mission statement here at the church is pursue Christ as king. Uh, they say that in order to be memorable, uh, a mission statement has to be 12 words or less. I think ours is around 15 and so whenever I have a covenant partner class, I say, can, do you know our mission statement? And everyone says, and they can never come up with it. So we're just a few words too long. But present Christ as Savior, pursue Christ as King, and partner with Christ in service. And so we, we have said as a community that, that foundational to who we are as a people is that we want to pursue Christ as King. And what we mean when we say that is that we are a community that recognizes that, in fact, Christ is the king of all kings. There are other leaders, rulers, presidents, etc., but Christ is over all of them as the ruler of the entire world, which is to say that Christ isn't just uh, the ruler or savior of our particular nation or of America, but rather Jesus is the ruler of the entire world. And that any, all, as those who have placed our faith in Christ, or if you're here this morning and you haven't yet come to that place, that when you do, when you come to a place where you put your faith and your trust in Christ, we become members of his kingdom and we live under his rulership or under his dominion. And so what we have said primarily is that we are first citizens of this thing called the kingdom of God. And yes, we belong to whatever nationality or whatever our citizenship is otherwise, but our primary allegiance and our primary citizenship belongs to this, this reality called the kingdom of God, which means then as, as we recognize Christ as king, we want to pursue what it means to live with him as our king. And so we pursue what it means to live with Christ as king over our lives, as the object of our worship, as the holder of our allegiance, and ultimately then to bring his kingship to bear on the world by modeling just the kind of king that he is. And so I want you to see, I want you to see this, this connection or this reality that through his, his life and through his ministry, Jesus is embodying and he's proclaiming this reality in the world called the kingdom of God, which means the reign of God or the rule of God. And that is to say it's, it's what the world looks like when God is in charge. 
That's the kingdom of God. And so every time that two people that are, that are at odds with one another forgive one another and reconcile, the kingdom of God is present. Anytime a hungry person is given food to fill their stomach, the kingdom of God is present. Anytime forgiveness is, is offered, for the kingdom of God is there. It's present. It's real. It's reality. And so the kingdom of God is this, this thing out in the world. And what we're doing is we're pursuing Christ as, as the king. And so this, there is a such thing as the kingdom of God. And then as the people of God, we recognize Christ as king. And then we are called then to embody that kingdom to the rest of the world. Does that make sense? That we are, we are given a mission. We're invited to participate in this thing that God is doing in the world. And so there's a very firm connection between all of this. But if we are going to model and bring to bear to the world what kind of king that Jesus is, then we're going to have to understand who Jesus is as king. We're going to have to know and explore the ways in which the kingship of Jesus is different than just any other king. And I want to submit to you today three things that the kingship of Jesus challenges in our lives. And the first thing is that Jesus' kingship Challenges our assumption that peace can be won through violence. The kingship of Jesus challenges our assumption that peace can be won through violence. Uh, in our world and in our culture, whenever there's discord, whenever there's evil, we often assume that the quickest, the easiest, the most natural way to meet that evil is by violent retribution. And that is precisely what uh, the Jewish folks of Jesus' day wanted, expected, were hoping for. That Jesus would ride into Jerusalem, that they would wave their palm branches, that they would call him the son of David, that they would lay down their cloaks, recognizing him as king, and then he would march in on his horse, ready for war. But he doesn't do that. He marches in. On a donkey. Which, on one hand, is so unexpected. But on the other hand, if you recognize the teaching of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, you realize that all during his ministry, Jesus taught his followers to love their enemies, to pray for those who persecute them. He taught entire crowds of people to offer forgiveness just as they had been forgiven. Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God and bring salvation. And he is in fact called in his birth narratives, the Christmas stories, he is called the Prince of Peace. You see, the world was changed forever through this man who taught forgiveness, enemy love, and it's called the Prince of Peace. And all of that was accomplished without resorting to violent revolution. But instead, Jesus defeated evil, sin, and death. The big three. Jesus defeated the big three by taking violence upon himself rather than bringing violence upon others. And so as followers of Jesus and as citizens of the kingdom, we are called to then model our lives after this king, to embody his kingship in the world. 
And if we're going to do that, we need to allow our assumptions that peace can come through violence to be challenged. Now, let's have a moment of honesty, right? This is really, really hard. It's really hard to get a hold of and to grasp because, because, number one, it's just so ingrained in us that this is the way that you meet evil. You meet evil with, with violence. That's how you do it. But it's also really hard when you recognize that violence isn't just bum, bums, bums. That's a combination between bombs and guns. It's also what you're sitting on. So, <laughs> violence isn't just guns and bombs, right? But violence can be words. And this is really hard because whenever I'm hurt, I'm not ever tempted to break out a gun. And chances are you probably aren't either. But I'll bet you are very tempted to bring violence against other people through your words or through your actions. And yet Jesus calls us to a whole nother way of life, something wholly different, totally different. It's also really hard because we live in an extremely complex world that makes this difficult. And as I've already said, when, whenever I'm tempted to do violence against other, I'm, often not, I'm not often tempted to bring physical violence against another, but I'm regularly tempted to bring violent words or violent attitudes against others who have hurt me. And in those moments, here's, here's the only way that we can fight against this. In those moments, I pray, God, would you expand and would you sanctify my imagination so that I can see a way to peace that doesn't include me resorting to violence. That's, I am utterly convinced that the only way for the people of God to become a peaceable people in culture is that we would pray and that God through his grace would give us an expanded and sanctified imagination so that we might begin to explore and see ways that we might pursue peace that does not come through violent means. We need God to expand our imaginations. And so we need to practice prayers that say, Lord, would you show me what it looks like to truly love my enemies? Lord, would you show me what it means to truly love those who have hurt me? And God, maybe this one, God, would you give me courage to actually pray for those who have hurt me? Because guess what? If I pray for someone who I consider an enemy or they have hurt me, it is very difficult to maintain and to continue to maintain a violent attitude toward that person when I lift them up in prayer. But can I be honest with you? It takes tremendous courage. It takes tremendous courage to lift up a prayer for someone who has hurt you so deeply. So maybe part of the expansion of our imagination and the sanctification of our imagination to see a way to peace that doesn't include violent means would just be God, maybe it begins with this, with the seed of God, would you give me the courage to pray for those who have persecuted and hurt me? The only way to peace is that God would expand our imaginations. Or maybe, Lord, help us to be peace, people of peace in a war-torn world. 
And may the old ways and may our old ways of retribution, violence, and hatred fall like scales from our eyes so that we can see the way of peace, enemy love, and forgiveness. And when we do that, we would be proclaiming, embodying the reality that Jesus showed us on Palm Sunday. That we are not riding in on a horse ready for war, but rather we are riding in on a donkey ready for peace. I believe in our world now more than ever, the church needs to rise up as people of peace. We need to begin to embody a different way. And it's difficult and it's challenging, but we need to let go of our our love of all things retribution. And and, and the number one thing I hear anytime I I preach this boldly, (laughs) anytime I preach this boldly, the number one thing I hear is, they're, they're just how else are you supposed to deal with evil against me personally, against whatever in the world, sort of on a cosmic scale? How else are you supposed to deal with it? And that's why I've just come to say, Lord, expand our imaginations. Help us to find a way. God is infinitely creative. And in the, in the work of refounding and changing the world, Christ did not resort to violence, but rather took violence upon himself. And it has changed everything. And so Christ demonstrates for us a completely different way to rule that doesn't succumb to a tit-for-tat retribution attitude, but, and we are challenged then to do the same. The, the second thing that I would say to you is that Jesus' kingship challenges our belief that our most urgent need is also our deepest need. Jesus' kingship challenges our assumption that our most urgent need is also our deepest need. You see, the Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah that would free them from the evils of Roman oppression, and it was their most urgent need. They had been waiting hundreds of years. They needed someone to show up, and they needed him to show up right now to rescue them. And Jesus does, in fact, rescue them, but he doesn't immediately rescue them from the evils of Roman oppression. What he does is he instead frees them from the far deeper evil of sin and death. And so they had this urgent need, but their urgent need was not their deepest need. And I believe the path to Christian maturity is recognizing this very truth. Right, I'm giving you a lot this morning. I want you to hang with me. But I believe the path to Christian maturity is, is recognizing that there are times in our lives where our most urgent need is not our, our deepest need. And so when we are in a time of need in our lives, we are notorious for turning, God, turning to God and telling him exactly what he needs to do uh, in order to rescue us and the best way to do it, right? <laughs> we want Jesus to, metaphorically, we want Jesus to ride into our city and become the sort of king that we want him to be. And so we say, Jesus, pay my bills and hurry. Heal this person and do it right away. Give me a job by this time tomorrow. Give me direction and by the way, I need it by next week. Or the simple and the most common prayer, help! (laughs) I'm certainly not putting those kinds of prayers down because there are times in our lives where those are the only prayers we can muster. So I don't want you to misunderstand me today because there is good news. The good news is that Jesus intends to answer these prayers, but in his own way. 
Just like Jesus had every intention to, be, to save them as they were shouting Hosanna, but he was going to do it in his own way. And I would submit to you that behind those prayers, behind the prayers uh, we know how to express is often usually a, a need of the deepest kind that we don't know how to express. And I want to say to you, the good news is that Jesus hears that and understands that. That oftentimes behind the prayer that we know how to express, the only kind of prayer we know how to express is a far deeper need that we don't know how to articulate. And Jesus says, I'll be there. I will meet that need. But sometimes, in order to meet the deepest kind of need, he needs to say either no or wait to our most urgent need. Because God did free them from evil. But he didn't immediately free them from the evil of Roman oppression. What he did is he freed them from the evil of sin and death. That was their deepest need. And so I just want us to hear that today. And I, in fact, would invite you to, to consider your deeper needs in your life. And then maybe take a moment to fill out your connection card and turn that in as a prayer request. Again, not as all the, all the details of your deepest need in your heart, life, or soul. Not that you bear your soul, but that you just say, you know what? My deepest need is for courage. My deepest need is for direction. My deepest need is that I would learn to forgive. We might feel like the most urgent need is get this person out of my life. <laughs> but our deepest need is, Lord, teach me to forgive. And if you put that down, we would love to pray for you and pray for one another. Jesus had every intention of answering their cries to save them, but their salvation looked totally different than what they had wanted or expected. And then the last thing. Jesus' kingship challenges my assumption that God is on my side more than he is on your side. Jesus' kingship challenges the assumption that God is on my side more than he is on your side. Back to Jesus riding in on a donkey. I don't think that we can uh, overstate the importance of that. Jesus riding in on a donkey was a sign of goodwill, not war. You see, if you ride in on a war horse, it sends the message that there's a good side and there's a bad side. That there is a fighter and there is an enemy. And I would submit to you that throughout all of human history, everyone that has ever gone to war to, at one another or nations going to war, everyone that has ever gone to war has believed that they are on the right side of war, justified in doing violence against the bad people. We are always quick to justify our war. But Jesus refuses to do that and instead... Riding in on a donkey demonstrates a sign of goodwill, of goodwill. Do you remember the announcement of the shepherds? Behold, I bring you good news that will bring great joy and goodwill for all people. Jesus is living into this message all the way, all those years later in Palm Sunday. Jesus' kingship is good for all. And so if we are going to pursue Christ as king and his kingship is good for all, then we better be careful not to make enemies out of people who are different than us. Let me, let me make this more personal. We better not 
be so quick to make enemies out of people who are different than you, who believe differently than you, who live in that neighborhood, who speak that different language. And if we follow Christ and yet make enemies out of people who aren't like us, I would just submit to you that I don't think we're doing a very good job of embodying his reign, who is good news for all people. And the same thing is true if we isolate sinners. If we isolate ourselves from sinners, then we aren't following Christ who was a friend of sinners. And since we all fall short of the glory of God, the label sinner just isn't that helpful, is it? If we want to isolate ourselves from sinners, we're going to have to isolate ourselves. And so the kingship of Jesus is good news for all people. And I want to submit to you that if it's good news for me, then it should also be good news for whomever I consider to be them. Who are the thems in your life? The gospel is good news for them. (laughs) Because Jesus' kingship is good news for all people. Uh, This is pretty challenging stuff, isn't it? But this is the richness of Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is like this this beautiful thing that we get to celebrate with the waving of palms and and it becomes the celebration of Jesus as king. But when we begin to think about and begin to work out what does it mean to recognize Jesus as king? What does it mean to embody his kingship in the world? Then it becomes to press against our lives a lot more. And so I don't want you to leave today doing what my five-year-old daughter does when she doesn't get something. <laughs> right? I, I, don't want to leave, I don't want you to leave today feeling like I'll never do that or I'll never be able to do that, but, but rather I, I want us to leave today just with, with a sense of, of, if nothing else, leave with a sense of, of awe at the beauty of the kingship of Christ. That, that even for all the ways that we may fall short in embodying this, that could we at least offer up our awe and our worship and our inspiration and, and see Jesus as the truly different kind of king that he is and then just pray, God, would you help me? Would you help me to begin to embody this? First of all, maybe in my own life. Second of all, in my own family. And then like just branching out from there so that eventually I can get to a place where your Holy Spirit so fills me up that I could begin to see even those who I would call an enemy, I could be, be able to know how might I be able to demonstrate love to them. See, I don't want you to leave today guilty because we don't, aren't fully living into this right away, but I rather I want you to leave today in, in, with awe-inspired worship of the kind of king Christ is and with a prayer that says, God, would you help me to live in to this kind of kingship? Help me to embody that kind of kingship. Can we do that? Oh, can we do that?
I think we can. 